What up, y'all? Welcome to Queer Walk, the podcast, the insurgent bi-weekly audio syllabus hosted for and by queer women of color. I am Money, the birthday bitch. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to be you're going to be old. I'm calling it my Reggie Miller year because, you know, 31. Yes, I know exactly who Reggie Miller is. This makes perfect sense to me. Nikita. I assume that that's some kind of sports star, right? Oh my God, Nikita! What? What am I? How? Oh God! I keep forgetting. <laughs> Is he a basketball player? He sounds like a basketball player name. Yes, Nikita. What like, team? He, he played for like damn near twenty years with Indiana Pacers, the same team. Oh the yeah, the Pacers. Number yeah, thirty-one. I, I wouldn't. I didn't know Indiana had a team, and I for you, damn sure didn't know didn't it was know. called the Pacers. Oh my God, Nikita. He was the, okay, I'm not going to go into this, but like, they used to call him the Nick Killer because of the Knicks and the Pacers rivalry, and he used to come to Madison Square Garden and drop all them points in the Knicks' face. You don't know who Reggie Miller is? How, how, how do we continue this friendship? Anyway, it's my birthday week. I don't know if I'll be able to hold on to calling it my Reggie Miller year because Nikita just crushed that for me but wow. i try to pick up the pieces and go on i didn't know who i was for this week but i guess i'm nikita the uh the queer who knows nothing about basketball <laughs> <laughs> yikes i mean i've heard the name i was like i knew i was like it's either gonna be football or basketball and i know you don't really watch football so i figured no what, what do you say i deduced that it was basketball <laughs> We should drop the intro immediately. Immediately. Love your chocolate demeanor and your cocoa kisses. I see your flow from a distance. Your vibe incite my submission. I give you all of me. Wanna make you proud of me. We see the God in all you do. Your light is harmony. Every type, darkest night, brightest light, I'm loving your soul They hate you, replace you, take you, but know that you go Worldwide from every continent, I just want you to jig a little bit Move them hips, feel that bliss, hug your sis, make a fist Don't resist your temptation, you amazing, no limitation My favorite in this matrix, we move by your vibration And that's love, I hope you hear that on the daily Cause baby you love, I hope you hear that on the daily Cause baby you love I hope you hear that on the daily, cause baby, you love, you love. All right, so you've just heard that amazing, illustrious intro, um, and that intro is from Truth, uh, who's uh, in the group Mother Nature, and if you, so if you love that intro, and I know that you do, you should listen to their new album here, and we posted a link in the Spotify, a link mm-hmm. of their new album that you can listen to on Spotify. Yeah. And that's like um, the only thing about this episode you will be able to find on Spotify. But Nikita, you could tell folks where they can find us. So you can find us in all the social media streets. So on Instagram and on Twitter, our handle is at QueerWalkPOD. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash QueerWalkPOD. You can find us on Tumblr, QueerWalk.com. 
And where can they listen? They can listen to us on Stitcher, Pocket Cast, SoundCloud, CastBox, and other major places where you can listen to podcasts except for Spotify. And, you know, sometimes people are shy, coquettish, nervous, private. And that's okay because you can send us your private, lengthy, girthy missives to our inbox, which is queerwalkpod at gmail.com. So, I've just told you all where you can find us in the social media streets. And Money and I, uh, despite our vast differences in our knowledge of basketball, we happen to be the hosts of this program, right? But it's not just us that makes this community go round. So money, can you tell people how they can donate and contribute to this here Queer Rock community? And you don't have to be a sports fan in order to contribute. You do not. Um, just have to be a community fan. Um, so, so you can support Queer Walk in one of two ways. The first way costs you nothing, and it's by loving us out loud. You can do that by doing one or all of the R's. You can rate us on the platform that you listen on. Review us, so leave a review. Take a minute to just like leave a, a kind word or a not-so-kind word, Kamala, Kamala, whatever. Uh, you can record. We can't get her name wrong just because we uh, <laughs> vehemently are against her political platform. Oh my gosh. You can repost the episode when we post. You can retweet when we're on the Twitter streets, or you can reply using the hashtag QueerWOC or hashtag QueerWOCPOD to talk all things the podcast. The second way to support Queer Walk, a way that we do not take lightly at all, you make it possible like for us to literally be on the airwaves, is by giving us money. Cash runs everything money. around us here. <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately. I wish the C stood... Well, actually, the C does stand for community. Community, community right. Rules everything around. Because if y'all didn't give us yeah. your cash, we wouldn't have a <laughs> Yeah. Nikita sitting over there with that good mic. <clears throat> um, so they, they can hear my heart beating. <laughs> you, yeah. So we got to thank y'all for the uh, audio upgrade. And it came in just in time, you know, since we buy coastal. Buy coastal. <laughs> Shut up, Nikita. <laughs> okay. Um, you can uh, give us money one of two ways. The first way is on the cash app, dollar sign, queer walk pod, P-O-D. Um, and that's, you know, just how Cash App works. Just hit the dollar sign, send it to us, no commitment. The other way to give us money entails... Put a ring on it. If you're ready if you're ready to settle down <laughs> with us, you know. If you're ready um, to be the Jessica Betts <laughs> to our niece Nash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can head over to the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash queerwalkpod, P-O-D. We have some suggested donations that you can give over there, but you can give as much or as little a month as you can, as your pockets will allow. Um, and yeah, we just really need help now that uh, we're doing this thing long distance. And every dollar you donate ensures that another episode of Queer Walk will yeah. come. That was nice. You, you practice? Okay, Nikita. Okay, Nikita, you done? I don't even know where we are you in the program a, anymore. 
we're moving it on okay. along to the queer walk, queer walk, queer walk of, of the, the week. week. Nailed it. You didn't. <laughs> I you nailed didn't, it. Friend, you did but not. It's okay. You always start late. You always start late. Because I, I anticipate what it is failure. that you're trying to do, and you're late. Anyway, which is an interesting change explain, of pace for our relationship. <laughs> can you explain what the Queer Walk of the Week segment so is? So the Nikita? Queer Walk slash Queer Pock of the Week is just a segment where we celebrate, amplify, and give roses to a Queer Walk or a Queer Pock who is just doing the damn thing and just doing something we think that the community should be aware of. And like I say, we should start, we should start calling this Queer walk of the week slash queer walk slash giving the roses of the week. Because I just think, I just love giving people their roses while they're still mm-hmm. with us. And we know that, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. especially with, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get into some long thing, but, you know, just with like COVID and, you know, with like state repression and there's just so yeah. much, you know, where, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then the, if not even like those acute things, just like, the things that slowly chip away, chip away at our well-being. It's like, you know, uh, just oppressed people. Just, you know, I just feel like we just don't often get to live long lives. And so it's like, yep. mm-hmm. I just want to, I just want to make sure that we can always give the roses to the people that deserve it while they're here. Or even if nothing like tragic happens, it's like, we just live these long lives and nobody like ever knows about all these amazing, or not enough people yeah. know about all the amazing things that, um, yep. that we do. So this is just our small part in the world of trying to do that. Yes. Oh, that was beautiful. Just like me. We can't be doing that. You know, I feel, I still feel a way about everybody we've lost this year. Yeah. Gosh, about to have me over here crying. Okay. Let's see if I can get through this. Oh, you're so emotional. I've been emotional, um, lately. Yeah. All right, so Queer Pock of the Week this week, uh, or Roses of the Week, go to um, queer, disabled, femme writer, organizer, uh, performance artist, educator, uh, uh, all the things, like facilitator, none other than the non-parel. Isn't that how you say that word? Unparalleled? Yeah. Leah Lakshmi Pepsna Samarshna. Okay, um, so I'm going to tell y'all a little bit about Leah. So, first of all, how I came across Leah and their work. I first was introduced to Leah's work um, in this class that I took with um, another baddie that we'll have to do another day, um, Himika. But she put me on to Body Map, which is a poetry book by Leah, Leah Lakshmi, and y'all... Body map is like all about um like femme of color like body reclaiming and it's just so fucking good. These two poems that out that stand out is obviously Body Map, the like um the title poem, but also this poem called um uh My Neighborhood is a is a hard femme or something like that. And it's just like Ooh. my my neighbor my neighborhood is the um 
the pretty girl on the corner who asks you what the fuck you staring at, right? Like, I just, <laughs> I love that poem so much. And then she got this other poem that starts, if you fuck me good, I might write a poem about you. And that just gives me so much of that, yeah. um, that Beyonce energy, you fuck me good, I take your ass to Red Lobster. Exactly. <laughs> I would just like to point out that Body Map came out before Lemonade. You know, you know, Beyonce. You know Beyonce still. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> the bee, I can hear the beehive buzzing already. <laughs> Nikita, we do not need Beyonce fans on our ass, okay? That is one fandom that we will not. We will not. We won't survive that attack, okay? Uh, yeah. All I'm saying is, we know that Beyonce loves the poets, right? She oh, always in- incorporates the girls into yeah. her work. Which is so, why she steals it. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if she was um, reading Leah Lachman. Oh, well. I'm, anyway, just, I'm just out of control right now. Let me just, let me calm down. <laughs> calm down. Um, so, other things about uh, Leah. So... Yeah, so Body Map, like I said. And another one that I feel like everybody was reading this one summer. Um, it's called Dirty River, A Queer Femme of Color Dreaming Her Way Home. And it's uh, kind of like a bio-mythology, like uh, Zami, mm-hmm. uh, R.G. Lord. Um, it's kind of like that. It's like this uh, mythological, fictitious story built around some of her own experiences. I haven't read it yet, but... I mean, everybody who read it said it was dope, so check it out. Pretty much everything that Leah has written has gotten some kind of, like, award, been shortlisted. Basically, they be writing their ass off. (laughs) Um, One that I have right now that I'm waiting to jump into in my free time is Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice. Um, And it really came out of... Um, I think they said they they were in the bed for like uh, a decade because of like chronic illness, uh, Mm -hmm. physical pain, fatigue. And really, it was like the work of other um, usually queer femmes of color, like coming through like, hey, girl, you good? You know, let me help you out. And like so Leah started writing those experiences and came up with like this whole framework for how um, femme of color labor basically is accessible mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. The, the ways that we we build community in order to make everyone um a part of it sure and so yeah so i love that i love that idea and i can't wait to read the book um some other books that you might want to check out by leah um the revolution starts at home uh confronting intimate violence um Within activist communities, Ooh. which I think a lot of folks could be reading right yeah. now. Because it feels like with this quarantine break, everybody been getting into that. Another poetry book called Love Cake. And it's all about how um, all the poems are about how like queer people of color resist uh, violence through love and desire. And, you know, that's right up my alley. That's basically my dissertation. Um. And last but not least, Consensual Genocide, um, which is another, like, um, short essay poem book. So, yeah. So, check out their written work. And last but not least, I wanted to shout out uh, Leah Lakshmi because in May of this year, they won the 2020 Jean Cordova Prize for Lesbian and Queer Nonfiction from the Lambda Literary Association. Oh, that's fantastic. 
Yes, yes. Um, and so this award honors like lesbian or queer identify women and trans folks who are like nonfiction authors. And so basically it doesn't go to like one of your works. It goes to like your body. The of body works, of your right? work. Oh, that's exactly. amazing. So to be so young and win this award, it just feels like dope as fuck. That means like, you already have written us in such an incredible way that that you've already won an award for yeah. it. And I think, yeah, I just think that that's that's so huge amazing yeah it's what it's exactly what you were saying about why we do queer walk of the week anyway right it's like yeah tell these stories while they're happening um not once we are shuffled off this mortal coil so shuffled off this what mortal coil Monty <laughs> python okay never mind <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't want to go into this statue, so <laughs> um yeah so again huge shout out um to Leah Lakshmi uh check out their um poetry you can find it everywhere from the deaf deaf poet society um bitch media self um all, all those places the body is not an apology um their writing is everywhere, basically. So check them out. And um, yeah, huge shout out to you doing writing all the things Truly. that make us smile. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Leah. And thank you, uh, Money, for regaling us with the, <clears throat> with the wonder that is Leah Lakshmi. So. All right, Nikita. Do you want to? Moving on along to community contributors. Wow. It's a it's really a great that the people can't see you do those terrible little jazz hands. I said wow. <laughs> that was not an invitation for you to give us an encore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So community contributors. So we have two new patrons this week. Shout out to Della. Thank you so much for coming through. And shout out to Diedrich for being a big time fancy artist that can drop off healthy <laughs> um, monthly uh, donations. Must be nice to be a big time big wig fibers artist. <laughs> hey, Diedrich. Thank you so much for all your contributions to Queer Walk and also for your friendship and love. Mm-hmm. And uh, for being my uh, astrological inverse. Love you. Ah, uh, yes. And I can't wait till I can afford your art, <laughs> which will, on a therapist's salary, will probably be never. But maybe I'll get the. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe we can um, pull our resources together to get like a piece of a, a piece of a piece. Yeah, like a a a, co- um, a koozie for a cup or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably all will be able to yeah, afford. I was about to say. <laughs> all right. Um, but thank y'all for becoming community contributors. Indeed. So. Oh, I want to do a small uh, let me shout out. Let me start off by saying something for the small town shout out. So it's probably, I don't know what will have happened by the time this episode comes out. But I did just want to give a shout out to the people in Rochester, New York. So, um, I don't know if folks have seen, I bet people in our orbit will probably have seen this by, by now, but 
the police in Rochester, which is um, not too far, um, it's just another case of really heinous, barbaric police murder. Um, there was a gentleman uh, by the name of Daniel Prude. Um, he was having some sort of um, episode, and uh, the police put a, a bag over his head. Mm-hmm. And it's just, mm-hmm. just really disgusting, really atrocious and horrendous. And um, so this happened actually months ago. And basically the mayor <clears throat> and uh, the police, basically it was like under wraps. And then I don't remember what happened to where it came to came to light, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. people in uh, Rochester, there, there's different organizations. Uh, one group I know of is Free the People in Rochester. Um, and so there's been massive protests in Rochester and uh, the yeah. U.S. Marshals, National Guard, the police are out there. Um, and they're just being just as barbaric as you would imagine. Um I've been I've been in quarantine, so I haven't I haven't been going anywhere since I um, got back just for health and you know safety reasons. But other people from here have gone, and they've been sending pictures and giving report backs, and that you know the police have been tear gassing people, uh, mm-hmm. playing loud music on loop. Um, they've been there were some people that went in to like this church to like for like sanctuary. The police surrounded it and were like terrorizing people. So I talked to one of the organizers. Um, they said that, I mean, I don't know if this demand will still be, um, if this call will still be out by then, but they were trying to get as many people to come um, to Rochester as possible just so, you know, pe- they could be in solidarity and be on the ground with folks. Um, yeah. So if they're still going, um, I'll probably try to go. I, by the time this episode um, comes out, if I'm able to go, I will have already gone. But I just just wanted to give an update about what's going on on the you know on the organizing against police um, upstate and Rochester's not it's not much bigger than Syracuse so I did just yeah. want to um, put that um, put that out there and they've been sending uh, I've got like a long list of like different cash apps and <clears throat> and Vimos to donate to so I'll put a link talking about what's going on there and um, I'll put a, a a link to the Free the People in Rochester, their organizational cash app or Venmo, so people can donate. Yeah. Yeah. I've been following along on Twitter through, like, folks that we know who are there. Yeah. And it's just, like, um, I don't know. Hard to watch stuff, hard to read stuff. Yeah. Um, but also... It's just such a a mess of two feelings because then you also get, like, enlivened by watching, like, people resist. Yeah. Um, And, you know, some things that people say are really, they, like, hit. You just be like, mmm, bars, you know? Yeah. Um, And so that always feels really good to know, I don't know, to know that, like, even with the onslaught, like, we still... This this is feels like a new ritual in grieving of like this is how yeah. this is how we communally do it. Yeah. Um Yeah. But um send in love and solidarity to Rochester. Absolutely. From all the way out here, so far away. What is the small town shout outs? Um, it's just the uh section of community contributors where I highlight how little I know about geography, um, how fake borders are, 
and um, where we shout out where y'all are listening from. So, yeah. So this week, we want to shout out Biloxi, Mississippi. I, used I know to, Biloxi. I was. I used to go to uh, Biloxi when I lived there. Yeah, I used to um, ride through there on the way to New Orleans. Um, Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. You know, New Jersey just be consistently yeah. in our top. I mean, what else is there to do in New Jersey, honestly, besides listen to Queer Walk? <laughs> I think they can find something. Um, oh, wow. Another another city that resists. Portland. Yeah. Shout out to Portland. Um, I'm really close to Portland now. Maybe I'll go down for like a weekend or something. Yeah. Um, you know, quarantine friendly weekend. And last but not least, Brownsburg, Indiana. Yeah. Ugh. Indiana, which is home of oh, who, Nikki? We just brought it full circle. Which is <laughs> home of Brownsburg, obviously. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. And also the KKK. <laughs> okay. Wow. Oh, so we did get this um, response from a listener. So on the last episode, uh, Mount Holly was one of the small towns. And somebody on SoundCloud said, hold on now. Mount Holly, we need a meetup because I thought I was the only queer out here. (laughs) (laughs) So y'all need to put the feelers out for Mount Holly, Mount Holly. So it cannot just be one, but however many queers or or people that listen to Queer Walk can meet up together. Have a a listening session for the the latest episode. All righty. So we're going to move it on along to my personal favorite segment of the show, which is Liar. the mental moment with Dr. Licensed Money. <laughs> we know we got to shove all the credentials in there. Uh, so this is the segment. Dr. Money, comma, LMFT. <laughs> okay, whatever. This is the segment where... Dr. Money, uh, comma, LMFT, regales us <laughs> with some kind of insight, some kind of therapeutic insight tidbit or something that we can know or use, you know, to help us to try to have as best mental health as we, you know, can under the circumstances. Truly. Yeah. All right. So All right. What do you got for us this week? Hold on, I have to like strap in. Cause, I don't know. see any notes <clears throat> here, so I don't know if this yeah. is empirically supported. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I'm kidding. Okay, so, okay, y'all. I, I Let me tell y'all a story. Let me provide the context of why this is my mental moment this week. All right? So, I'm in my new apartment. She just got just, a new apartment. But Machinique would not leave the floors wet. I'm not leaving my floors wet. And she's not about to walk around that Um, bitch naked neither. So do you even have do you even have a new apartment? You're not doing any of the things. You know, you know what's been you know what's been my um new apartment uh song? The Diana Ross house and I 
live here. She didn't know nothing about that song before me. There's a welcome, welcome at. at. <laughs> you didn't know nothing about that time. before me. I did, okay? Because it was on the Pose soundtrack. So mind your business. Okay. Um, so I'm, you know, in my new apartment, minding my business, listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Why Won't You Date Me with Nicole Byer. Love Nicole. Shout outs to Nicole Byer. I love Why Won't You Date Me. It's one of the silliest, funniest, relatable podcasts I listen to. Then, so I see the episode is released with Sam J, right? So I'm already super side eyeing Sam J because uh, for folks who don't know, I'm I about to say sure who was Sam J? Why would you even need to know? Um, so Sam J, y'all, is this comedian, right? And she's a black lesbian masculine presenting. I was here for her um, after she did like the thirty minute. Um, what was it? It was like a 30-minute Netflix special. I can't remember. It was like a series of comedians, and they all gave them like these 27-minute episodes. I was kind of seeing it for her because she had this whole bit about white people being aliens, and I thought it was really funny. But since then, um, yeah, and she's like the only black woman who writes for, what is it, Saturday Night Live. So, you know, I was I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of here for her. But then, since then... She's done some things that that made me feel really questionable, right? So, first of all, she her new special came out on Netflix. I'm not going to tell you the name of it because I'm not necessarily uh, pu- pubbing it. Uh, basically, she had this, uh, like, five-minute piece that was transphobic. Straight up. It was just, like, transphobic uh, jokes. And people nicely i mind you like because you know she's a she's a ag however you want to describe you know she's masculine presenting lesbian so people are like not being like oh you transphobic bitch why did you say this at 39.9 seconds in your (laughs) in your uh special people are like hey boo just so you know this is kind of transphobic here's how you know you could incorporate trans folks and punch up instead of punching down, right? And she's responding to this defensive as fuck. It's not transphobic. You know, and this is is my internal, this is how I read her tweets, right? (laughs) Because if somebody tells you something is transphobic, like, you just gotta eat that, right? You just gotta be like, oh shit, my bad. Especially... If if, if multiple people are saying you gotta... Right. It's not right. like just some fringe random people. Exactly. It's not like everybody was like, love the special, love the special. And then this one person commented, it's transphobic. Like, and not even the whole thing, right? People were specifically talking about, hey, yeah. this 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 joke kind of fucked up. Um, Yeah. So, so then, you know, I side-eyed. So after that, I was like, hmm, you know, I mean, all right. And I'm, you know, I'm going to say this. It might be a little spicy, but sometimes I feel like studs are the weak link of the lesbian chain. Wow! Uh, like, like, they just they just take so much, like, massaging and nudging to get to a place that other queer women just, like, understand. And I, I don't know what that's about. I don't know if it's, like, this particular form of masculinity that you feel like you need to embody. But, like... I don't give a fuck anymore. I don't have no patience for it, right? So anyway, so I'm already looking at her like that, like, oh, she might not, you know how somebody might be uh, identified as queer but not be politically queer? Mm -hmm. That's where I was thinking about her, right? So then 
I turn on one of my favorite podcasts that she just happened to be a guest on. And and Nicole is such a nice person that she didn't really like, you know, like, bitch, you, you sound crazy right now. Because she was going on these like long rants and stuff. She misgendered one of her friends as she's telling stories. Again, you know, the transphobe like light is blinking. And I'm not even saying people... People, you know, can learn stuff and, like, grow, you know? Yeah, yeah. But you're young enough. Sam is young enough to be in this generation where we already know these things about gender not being fixed. If you can understand it so very clearly with your own sexuality, how do you not comprehend it with gender? And so, so again, you know, I'm like, eek, eek, eek. And so finally, at the end of the episode, uh, Nicole goes, are you in therapy? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And this is when I was like, this is it. You're done. Right. And like, I could, I I mean, I will also own that it took these three strikes for me because I'm cis, probably. Like, the first two would have probably been enough for somebody who was not cisgender. But... Last strike, strike number three, is she replies to Nicole that she doesn't think black people should go to therapy. She went twice and it felt like a waste of the time, a waste of time. She thought the lady was dumb, um, which most studs do think about all ladies. Um, I don't know <laughs> about most. Lady, I'm, I'm going to say about 84% of studs. <laughs> wow. <laughs> In my in my um, research, uh, don't think that women have have the same level of intelligence as them. And they wait, boys. women or fems? But anyway, fems. Okay. Thank you, thank you for that asterisk. Don't think fems have the same level of intelligence. Anyway, she goes on to talk about how like she doesn't understand how you get help in the same house that you're getting abused in. Just get out. Ba ba ba. You know, which. Doesn't make any sense in the context of everything else she said in that conversation, but also just like as as a black person, you you fucking live in New York City. You're not saying this as an expat <laughs> in Ghana somewhere. Like you're saying this from like the the seat of empire. Wait, so well, like I, well, I didn't understand. She said, "What was what was the point she was trying to make about not getting help in that, the same house?" Was that like a metaphor, or like a literal thing she's a, trying to say? I. I think I think kind of both. So she she used this really ridiculous, I think, like comparison to people who are in intimate uh, or domestic violence situations. Like you don't you don't tell them you don't uh, get them help and then they stay. The solution is to get out of the house. And I'm like, actually, <laughs> actually. So she uh, said that in relation to therapy. She's saying that in relation to therapy, right? That okay. black people, if you're experiencing racism and like all the things that fuck us up, you just need to like get out of America, basically. Oh, and it seems like you should. Like, uh, it seems like the logical next step would be to just <laughs> just get a black therapist. <laughs> you know, Nikita, that logic is just right there, right? It's just it's within reach. Now, but was somehow, she was she being like? hyperbolic and ridiculous because she's a, a comedian because i didn't listen to it or like Nikita, these are things like... these are like heartfelt beliefs that she has like serious beliefs that she has i feel like you're giving her grace 
I'm no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to understand because um, I did not, like, no, I did no, not no, listen I'm being to real. it. Um, I don't think that there was any like I'm being hyperbolic. I think she she stood firm and black people shouldn't go to therapy. And that's another thing, right? Like that statement also, it like assumes that all therapists are white. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, all those things. Um, And also, because I did listen to the episode, like other things she said to and about Nicole and and about herself, like it just felt like she very deeply believes this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I got a cat and I breathe and that's my therapy. Like, no, no, it's actually not because because she ain't in therapy. So nobody is psychoanalyzing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I wanted to say and and I, you know, I will say I'm sorry if I like pulled some people's ponytail that this isn't even about It's specifically about Sam J. But it just reminded me so much of other like studs, AGs that I've had yeah. conversations with that I was just like, I've had enough. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> it's time to put my femme foot down. So my mental moment today, all that being said, is five ways to know therapy is working and five things that you should do to make sure it does work (laughs) because it's like any other relationship it requires work it requires work and the the i think people think okay i'm gonna just show up and sit on this couch and i'm gonna magically be be healed healed. yeah and it's like "Mm, no you actually have to do something yourself too um, if it was as simple as, ooh, I'm a therapist and just like come into my room and be healed, do you know how much money I'll be making? Yeah. Um, okay. So first of all, I wanted to give a little bit of um, like background to, okay, so the, the shit that Sam has, has said is not anything new, right? Right, a right, lot of right. Pe- yeah. A lot of people say this. Um, there's even researchers who have committed their careers to being like talk therapy does not work. It's not effective. Right. But the thing is that the overwhelming amount of research that discredits that research is just like you is on the fucking niable. OK, so this started back with this hating ass dude named Hans Eisnick and y'all might not recognize that name if you took psychology 101 because he's the one who came up with the um, intelligence and personality test um, but he had a very biological way of thinking about it right so like personality is inherent inherited just like um, intellect intellect is inherited and so you could you could see, oh, I should maybe maybe this is unrelated, but I think it's related. Like uh, Eisnick is also a German dude, and this is right after um, Nazi Germany, <laughs> Germany, that he's doing this research about um, intelligence being inherited. I think mm. it's a part. It was really a part of this like white supremacist wave, and and I think um, this whole wave of ableist research that was happening that was like anti folks with intellectual disabilities, right, right, right. right. Um, cause it's in 1952, right? So he publishes this uh, article and he's like, that talk therapy don't work basically. Right. So then it was this dude named Strupp, right? And he assembled like this research army 
Um, because all of Eisnick's research was only based on like a uh, Freudian therapist. Like, so he studied 24 therapists, but they were all practicing Freudian therapy. Right. So Strupp, Strupp was like, oh, you think it don't work? Bet. So Strupp created this 10 year research project. Um, exhausting, like therapists across the board, different theoretical um, backgrounds, different races, uh, Strupp's, and at the time, y'all, this is like the late 50s, early 60s, like including black people, Latinx folks in research was like a, a kind of a big deal at the time. So basically what I'm saying is Strupp actually did good research and not um, bigoted, skewed research mm-hmm. and found that overwhelmingly, so he published this article in 1963, and I also have to say, it was in the first ever journal of um, psychotherapy. So, you know, Eisnick is doing this research and publishing in biology journals, mm. which for, you know, for the nerds like me, that also has an influence on what you say is happening in the research, right? Because you want it published in a biology journal. So even if talk therapy was working, why would you report that? When you're trying to make this case and argument that um, personality and intelligence is is inherited, right, you get what I'm right, saying? Right, 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 right. Okay, he's Thank there's you. already like this worldview that's kind of uh, like biologically deterministic. Right. All right. Thank you, Nikita. Yeah. So Strupp was like, "No, fuck that. We need our own journal. Therapy is a different thing." So we about to create this journal. He take his bad bitch researchers and publishes. <laughs> That's probably what he said, literally. Come on, bad bitches, let's go. (laughs) The ladies got information, and they published this article in 1963 (laughs) that, again, was a 10-year study of talk therapy. Therapists across the racial spectrum, therapists across the, like, practice spectrum, and found, actually, therapy does work. And not only does it work, but... It, it works, like, across, like, differences. It works even if people have social connectedness or not. Like, there's something about therapy that people report better life life satisfaction now, after having had it. What you say, that, that Eisnick? Eisnick. Now, was he doing longitudinal studies like Strupp? No. So, cause I'm like, cause that's another thing. I'm like, how can you, yep. how can you chart any sort of meaningful change if you're not looking at something like over time? Nikita, see, this is why your brilliant ass is my friend. Cause, <laughs> cause also it has to do with orientation to, um, change, right? I think that's why we have different disciplines of mental health professionals and like all this stuff. Right. So if you're a psychologist who believes that um, that mental health is biological, you're not concerned with like longitudinal stuff. You're concerned with like, I'm going to make this intervention and then immediately after I'm going to see if there's a change. Um, And as a person who's been to therapy and also a person who does therapy, like, you you interview me before and after one session. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like that's not. What is, what, I'm still be, I'm still in the same mess I was. That's what I'm saying. He's like, nope. Still unhinged. Yes, of course I am. Of course right. I am. Come on. Right. Yeah. So um, 
So present day, so basically, um, Strupp came through, like I said, with the bad bitch researches and basically shut this argument down, right? Like therapy does work. Now, the what the current argument is in the field is why? Like, how does mm, it work? Okay. Um, so if you were actually keeping up with the therapeutic argument, Sam, you would have <laughs> understood. Oh, uh, yes. Under- Just perusing <laughs> through the therapeutic research as one is want to do. <laughs> See, this, See, this is why this in moments like this, this is when I know that like, oh, I actually studied this yeah. stuff for a living because <laughs> I'm like, uh, how could you not know that that argument was already settled? But anyway, like um, 60 I, years ago, <laughs> you are like, you're so 2000 and late. For that <laughs> argument, okay. Um, <laughs> so basically the two, I guess the two camps now in um, psychotherapy research and like effectiveness is does therapy work because of this medical model? Meaning that like, um, because people go through rigorous training to become therapists that, uh, we use empirically, empirically supported interventions. Basically, does it work because it's been, um, proven that it works. Yeah. Yeah. And the other camp, is the relational camp. That's what I'm calling it because, you know, um, shout out to all my relational therapists. Uh, Basically, the other camp is, no, therapy works because of the common factors. So that's like um, unconditional positive regard, empathy, genuineness, um, just basically practicing a good relationship with somebody. Mm. Right? So it's relational. So it goes back and forth. You know, some years it really feels like we're leaning towards, oh, therapy works because of the training and bah, bah, bah. And then some years it feels like the research is like, "Mm, no, therapy works because um, therapists are like practice grounds for relationship building, Mm -hmm. basically. So So the debate is not even about whether it works or not, but it's like what makes it work. That debate was squashed yeah it's literally like that's like so 2000 and late okay yes yeah so i mean even even medical journals are reporting that therapy works like like that's not a that's not even an argument anymore like yeah even um there's some studies that were like oh i can't i think it was frank and frank but i can't remember who the researcher was but i think it was frank and frank that showed as little as three consecutive sessions could make an impact on somebody's like well-being. Yeah. So like three weeks in a row and then like you don't even have therapy for like the rest of the year. Like even that window of something helped. Okay. Um, so yeah. So that's not <laughs> that's not even the argument anymore. The argument is really around like why does this work? How does it work? Yeah. What, like what is this magic of therapy that we can like actually train people to do it yeah and and measure the impacts measure it right right um that's the medical model as well it's like oh how do we like how many sessions do we need in order to like do this yeah you know all that managed care shit blah 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 (laughs) okay i know this is a very long intro y'all but i just got really hyped to do this and i warned nikita ahead of time that i i um this is going to be like a kind of lengthy mental moment. So I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> okay. So now my actual mental moment, now that y'all have the, <laughs> the, the, 
what that context is critical. I think it's really important. <laughs> I hope, and I hope somebody walks away from here and be like, "You are so late because Isaac put out that whack ass <laughs> study, and then, <laughs> then Strupp, Strupp came through in in sixty three and proved that therapy works." Yeah, you so like you uh, <laughs> this was settled uh, sixty years ago, bro. Like, I mean, why are we even talking about this? So the next time your parent is like, what is talking to that person going to do to help you? Well, you're like, well, strep, like- strep at all. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, bitch. <laughs> Parentheses, 1963. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> In a longitudinal study, I about to found, say when you said the longitudinal, I was like, "Oh shit, that's okay." <laughs> that was really the flex, right? Yeah, like you get you get so mad at this article that somebody wrote that you spent ten, ten years, yeah, a decade. You like, oh, bet, bet. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, like year five, they were like, "I think we have enough." No, damage. keep going, keep going, <laughs> keep going. Okay, y'all. So, how can you tell? I do think that this is a valid question. Like, how can you tell right. that therapy agreed, is working? Agreed. Okay. Um, and so, I just want to give like five points of ways uh, you can tell that therapy is working. I also think this is just like a good kind of assessment that you can use to know if like you and your therapist are a good fit. Because that's real. If there's like a whole a whole thing about um, like common factors and feeling basically safe in a relationship with this person. You, you gotta find a good fit. You know, if this is not to say, Oh, therapy works. And then you just walk into any therapy room. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah. I had plenty therapists. I didn't like, you know, (laughs) so that's why they didn't see me very often. Um, All right. How can you tell if therapy is working? The first telltale, you're seeing things differently. I had to make this my first one because as a therapist and and going to therapies, when I have somebody in the room or on Theranest now, because everything is uh, teletherapy, and they say, I never thought about it like that. Yeah. That's just like, oh, I am doing my job so well. (laughs) Um, and also, um, I, I think I say this all the time on here, I'm a narrative therapist. And so um, so narrative therapy really tries to shift you into like a preferred story of your reality that doesn't feel so crushing. And a lot of times when I say this, I always have to qualify it. Like this is not making fairy tales or fantasies of your reality for you to live in, right? Like, oh, this shit is like too much. I'm going to just make this fan- fantastical where- world where I don't have to deal with all- any of my issues. What narrative therapy tries to do is to get you to reauthor those experiences so that they're not so soul-sucking, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so not, not create this like fantasy alternative of what happened. Deal with the very real impacts of what happened, but just write write a narrative about it that doesn't feel like you can't wake up to deal with it. The next right, day. right, right. Yeah. And you do that by getting people to see different perspectives um, or remembering like other details of it. Right. Mm, so yeah. 
this it was just like this really cute moment I had. Um, I was working with like a little kid, like maybe six. I think they were six. And they were telling me about how they had like fell off their bike, right? So they kept like drawing a bicycle wheel all over the paper. And they were just telling me this whole story about how they fell off their bike and they never gonna um they never gonna get on their bike again. And I just asked a small question. I was like, Well, how did you get home from the park? And they were like, I rode my bike. And then they just looked at me <laughs> in that moment of like, I fell off my bike and then I got on it and it rode, rode it home. home. Yeah. yeah. It was just like this really small little moment. And I just, it was just so adorable to me. But that's, that's what I mean by like, you're yeah. seeing things differently, right? Because that could have easily been a story that they stuck with for the rest of their childhood. And, you know, like, I'm never going to get on a bike ever again. Right. Even right. though they got on a bike, but that would have been the, the grand narrative that they had told themselves about it. Yep. Because you ever notice, like, when you tell a story, like, you continue to tell it in a way and you start to leave out all these details. Yeah. And, like, if you told that story so much about how you fell off the bike and scraped your knee, you would never, after a while, you would never remember that you got back on that bike and yeah. rode home. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first way. You start to see things differently. The second way to tell therapy is working you can hold the now without being stuck in the now. Mm. So, um, a lot of people take take this as like mindfulness, like oh this thing is I'm ha- this thing is um, happening, I'm experiencing it. But you can do past and future talk. So a lot of times, the first intake that I'll see somebody, I'll notice that it's either all past talk, like this thing happened to me and it's so devastating, or it's all right now talk, right? Like like I'm th- this feeling is so big, I like there's yeah. nothing else. Um, so a few sessions in, you start to hear, oh, next week I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. I'm like, next week? Okay. So we, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, we got right. some, some future, future talk uh-huh. happening. Yep. Yep. Um, you can tell me about your past and then come back. So basically your language starts to expand in time. Okay. Right. Um, that, that's another way you can tell that therapy is working because when you come in, you just, it's just like this ball of right now, right. Like a bowling ball. And it's just like sitting on your chest. And so when you start to move around and do that future talk and you can do that past talk and bring it back to the present, therapy is working. Number three, you move different. Meaning behavioral shifts, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I, I love behavioral activation, especially with like depression and anxiety, right? So you get in this in this mode, maybe when you first start coming to therapy, you staying up till 3 a.m., just like head running full of all kind of weird thoughts, right? And then a month and a half into therapy, you realize you're going to sleep around 12, Maybe maybe even eleven thirty on a good night, you know, <laughs> like that's a behavioral change. And if you don't catch it, like if you don't put a pin in that, that that will just like go by and yeah. you won't even notice. You won't, like, you won't notice a market shift. Right, right. Um, so maybe you're not a like an internal person. Maybe for you it has to be that you start to notice you move different. Right. That's that's another sign that therapy is working. Uh, I, I always like, I used to like to talk about behavioral shifts when I was doing the women's, um, substance abuse group. 
Um, cause I'm, you know, I don't, I mean, I don't think that's a secret if you listen to this, but I'm really pro like risk management and like, um, like decreasing as opposed to abstinence. Like I think abstinence models are, well, they can be very dangerous. Like some drugs to just quit cold Turkey. Like, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah. So highlighting to people like, wait a minute, it's been it's been like three weeks or six weeks since your last um, like screen came back positive. Like, you know, that means for three weeks you've been right. um, You haven't touched nothing or, you know, it's like giving those little incentives and also being like, okay, you went five days checking into group. Okay. I see you, you know, right. It just feels hopeful. Keeps people going. Behavioral changes. The fourth is you can put words to things that you used to not be able to put words to. Um, You can describe an experience you're having out loud to other people and other people can like take that in and digest it. You know, Um, (laughs) this is one. I mean, I'll get to this on things you need to be doing. But like this is one thing that I really love having people do in therapy is like put words to it. I'll ask questions to get them to like say more so that they have to say the thing out loud. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I feel like once you get comfortable saying it to me, then you, then that can like spill out and trickle out into your world. So if it's really hard for you to like, let your partner know that this thing they do gets on your nerves. Yeah. If you, (laughs) if, what what did you say, Nikita? If it's mentionable, that's about it's to manageable. say that's Mister Rogers. If it's mentionable, it's manageable. <laughs> right. So you can tell me about that thing and how it gets on your nerves. You can then yeah. say it to your partner. So that's number four. And last but not least, how to tell therapy is working is you have some newfound self awareness. What do I mean by self awareness? I mean, you can reassure yourself. You can rescue yourself. You trust yourself. You know your own limits. Yeah. You know your own triggers. You know why you feel this way about a thing. You know why you behave this way towards someone or about this certain thing. Like all those reflective pieces where it's not just passing you by anymore of like, I'm pissed off and I don't know why, or I'm in such a good mood and I can't understand like why mm-hmm. when you, when you are able to answer those whys for yourself, when, you know, you feel like things is kind of going off the rails and you can be like, okay, I'm here with me right now. Um, that is a sign that therapy is working, building that self-awareness. Okay. Okay, and I'm going to um, rattle through these pretty quickly of the f- my five things that I think you should do to make sure that therapy does work. The first, are you clear on what you want to accomplish in therapy? Take notes between sessions or even before a session. What do you want to talk about? What do you if if you had to walk in and accomplish one thing, if one thing in your life could be different after, what would it be? How can you tell that that thing is different? What what does that mean you have to work on in therapy? Um, because at the end of the day, you pay for this, whether yeah. it's covered by your insurance or not. So you don't want to be wasting your money just going in there, key with your therapist, 
Cause we, I mean, we'll keep keep with you, you know. <laughs> <We're> like, <laughs> we are like master uh, conversationalists, you know. We can make an hour happen, but what do you want to yeah. accomplish? Um, and my my advice is to like make a list, but you know, I'm. I must say, you love stuff. a list okay. anyway. <laughs> um, number two. Try out therapy things in other relationships. This is what I was talking about, right? Like, you can't just do it once a week or every other week with me and think that that's going to transform your your social world that I'm not really a part of. Like, like when people come to see me for therapy, I think one of the things that makes therapy so good is, like, you don't have to be responsible for my reaction to whatever you share, right? Like, I'm not part of your social world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So... Because of that, you if something shifts in therapy, you have to enact it in your own social world mm. or nothing changes. I'm basically like a living diary for you. Like I'm not, I'm not, you know, a therapist at that point. Um, implement what we talk about. Don't just talk about it. Write down what you did in session. This is my third thing, right? Are you doing what you want to be doing? Like, did you just spend a whole session talking about designer do-rags? And then you're like, oh, snap. I actually wanted to talk to her about that. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? what is it that you actually did in session? This is also a good way to see, hmm, do I really work well with this therapist? Right, right. They always, they always want to talk about my parents. And I'm really here because. I need to um, talk about something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so write down what you did in session. Number four, try to cope, then troubleshoot in sessions. So I like to think about uh, therapy sessions as relational laboratories, right? So we try we try stuff out. Um, you tell me, girl, I told him this and shit hit the fan. You know, it's like we troubleshoot the things that you already tried out. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, and so in order to do that, you have to be trying shit. You have to be, you have to be like out trying to cope, trying to manage your own stuff, um, figuring out why it didn't work. Maybe even um, I know a lot of people keep like logs of, OK, my anxiety was really bad this day. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. we can we can go back and be like, oh, what was going on that day? What happened? Like. That's a well-used session, right? You're getting your money's worth and it's applicable to your life. Right. And last but not least, speak up when something is not, not working. It's not working, yeah. Because therapists, I mean, you know, just like a lot of other professionals, we get we get in these veins of like, oh, we know this theory so well because we've been practicing it or we've been studying it. Um, or we have worked with this particular presenting problem for so long that we just think we already know what to do. So we got a treatment plan and we will work through that treatment plan. Just checking shit off. Thinking well, we, even if it's not working for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thinking we doing incredible therapeutic interventions. Meanwhile. And you sitting there like, um, none of this is applicable to right. me. <laughs> So you have to speak up. You have and um, any good therapist. I think this is also a therapy check. Um, see how your therapist reacts to you um, giving feedback. Bas- yes, if they can't take feedback, I don't think that you should be seeing them for therapy, yeah. regardless of their identities. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, girl, you really it it hurt you this bad that I said 
um, that I couldn't do yoga every morning from seven to eight. Come on, you know, right. <laughs> like like that doesn't fit my my life. So yeah, and I think it's also a practice for you. Like I said, therapy is like a relational laboratory. Um, how often are you able to like state your needs in um, other relationships say, in your life? Yeah, exactly. Say when something isn't working for you. Um, say that it's kind of getting on your nerves that they always uh, start the session 15 minutes late. Yeah. You know, you have to you have to be able to say these things to a professional that at the end of the day, you're paying. So that was my mental moment. This <laughs> I feel was like, good. Uh, this was good. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I was I was just thinking. I feel like I ha- I only have two versions of mental moments. Either I go all the way in it, or I'm just like, let's just be here with each other today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just feel like this is so good because I feel like a lot of people have. I mean, I feel like a lot of people have experiences, probably like bad experiences, and you mm-hmm. know, like Sam J, they just throw their baby out with the bathwater. But mm-hmm. I feel like. And then you hear people say, oh, we'll try somebody else. But then they say, if you have multiple therapists, like you see multiple people and it's bad, then, you know, I think it's human to be like, okay, yeah. well, something's fun, fundamentally fucked up about this whole project. But I feel like you, yeah. that's like, I feel like you're bringing it, making it more concrete than that to be like, mm-hmm. like, this is what you can actually assess. Not only this is how you assess if it's working or not, but this is like, like, there's also things that we can do, like, uh, I guess from, like, the client or patient end, too. So, mm-hmm, I just, and I mm-hmm. feel like that, you know, we love context here. So, even that, that context at the beginning is, like, really, really, really critical. Ding, 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 ding. And now, our leftist lesbian luminary labor lecture from Nikita. Ding. Just always with the jazz hands. (laughs) Can't help it. Um, And for those of you who this might be your first episode of Queer Walk, or for those who are returning and need a refresher on what the word segment is, um, the Lesbian Luminary Labor Lecture from Nikita is just the segment where she breaks down some social justice jargon, um, tells us about some political goings-on that we need to know about as queer folks of color, or gives us, like, the radical roots of, like, something that's happened currently. So, without further ado, the word from Nikita. All righty. So, today, uh, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about because uh, uh, money was in her black communist, black woman communist bag on the last episode. Um, I had, There's something I was going to talk about, but I just, I, I didn't want to talk about that. So instead, I remembered on Twitter, I came across, uh, I think it was the Claudia Jones Project tweeted out uh, this little video of Charlene Mitchell. And so that's what I want to talk about um, today. So Charlene Mitchell was a black woman and she was a member of, not just a member, but like a high ranking leader and member of the Communist Party. Uh, So she ran, she's actually, that's actually the first black woman that ran for president. So she ran for president on the Communist Party ticket Mm -hmm. 
1968. Uh, she's still oh. alive. Go ahead. Can you say, can you just say that again? She's the first black woman who ran for president. Right. So so she ran for president in 1968, and I think it's the next election cycle, 72, where Shirley Chisholm, and that's who most of us know, is the first black woman uh, yeah. running for president. But there's a precursor in Charlene, and a lot of people didn't know about that. I didn't know about that till that video. Um, so I just want to talk about her. Why just, do you think people don't know Charlene was the first? Because she ran as a communist? Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess I was going to get to it, but I mean... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'll, you, you'll probably, you'll understand a little bit more about why most people um, didn't uh, really know about that. So I'm just okay. going to just talk about some of, like, the, some of the interesting things I found um, about her life. It's not going to be any kind of like exhaustive thing, but just things that I thought were interesting. Uh, so she was born in Cincinnati. Uh, her mom was, oh, what I was saying was, um, as far as I'm aware, Charlene Mitchell is still alive. She was born in 1930, so she's like 90. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, that something about that just made me so happy. Uh, so like I said, she was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Her mom, uh, Naomi, Naomi Taylor Alexander, uh, her mom was born in Tennessee and her dad, Charles Alexander, uh, was born in Georgia. So her, both of her parents were from the South. So she's born in Cincinnati because they were part of that first, you know, wave of like black migration Mm -hmm. from the South, Mm -hmm. you know, in the North. Uh, so her mom, she said her mom was basically a stay-at-home mom, um, and her dad, he uh, he was a railroad worker, and he was also an organizer. He had some kind of membership, uh, some kind of like some like local leader title in the Democratic Party, and then he he too eventually joined the Communist Party. And so uh, Charlene really was not fucking around when it came, when it came to like organizing. So she joined the youth wing of the party. So there's this group called American Youth for Democracy. So she joined that when she was 13 years old. And that was the Oh wow. That was the that was the youth wing of the Communist Party. And it's interesting. I don't remember. I don't have it in front of me, but the it was called something else. Um not the American Youth for Democracy. It was called something else, but because of like rising like anti-communism the the communist party switched it to something to sound a little bit more patriotic yeah so um and then one of the most of the stuff i read came from this long interview she did uh in 2004 with somebody i'll put a link to it in the show notes but so she tells this really great story about like what are like the first actions you know that she was a part of so um, so she says that her first political activity was um, not being able to go to this movie theater in Chicago. So it's called the Windsor Theater. So, you know, you think about the time, it's the 40s, so, you know, segregation. So it's segregated. So um, black people had to sit in the balcony and then white people, white kids sat mm-hmm. um, in the bottom, below. So one day uh, they just decided, you know, we, fuck that. We're not going to do that. And so they switched places. So the white kids sat in the balcony and the black people, the black kids sat down on the ground, on the floor. Um, and the, yeah, in the lower part. And so um, management came down and they were like a little torn about what to do because um, they didn't want to tell the white kids that they couldn't sit in the balcony because, you know, the white kids were supposed to be able to sit um Wherever they, wherever they want. And so, mm-hmm. and so, um, so they were like, 
well, fuck, what do we do? And so she says, like, so if the if the white kids had stayed up there, then uh, we would have been, um, then we would have basically, if the white kids would have sat, some of the white kids from her little group would have stayed sitting up there, then it was basically, like, integrated, right? And so um, they didn't know what to do. They didn't do anything. And so they did this for about three times. And then finally, it just, it, that that theater just was, ended up being integrated. And so the, <laughs> the thing that was interesting was that, um, so all the kids that first initially did the protest were, they were the kids from the American Youth for Democracy. So that was, again, that young, that young people's group, that, that, that young wing of the Communist Party. So that's how it started out, like black and white kids from mm-hmm. that little uh, group. And then she said by the second time they did that, it was like all these kids from the neighborhood, like a whole bunch of kids from the neighborhood who didn't have anything, any relation to that group um, joined in. And this was in um, Chicago. And she has, she actually used to live in um, the Cabrini uh public uh public housing and a lot of folks um uh, may know that um that history but that's like that was like one of her first forays like into like mm-hmm. doing some kind of political action um, that is so cute isn't it and, like, right right yeah impactful yeah um so she was a part of like a, she's been a part of a lot of different organizations and she even at this time of her life when she was a teenager she was involved in a lot of different stuff so i'm not going to go into all the groups that she was a part of but this one group that she was a part of it was called the temporary alliance of local organizations and i want you to tell me what you think this group what modern group this sounds like so they monitored so they watched like stuff like around police brutality. So this is what they did. So she says they used to watch the police. It was a community effort in the sense that there were um, all kinds of people, judges, doctors, lawyers, and people in the community. They divided themselves up and they would go out and just watch the police. And so she says, so in, in the interview, because it's a written interview, in um, brackets it says laughter. So she's chuckling as she says this. They would just go out and watch the police. Mm-hmm. And so she says, I do think it helped to stop some of the harassment, harassment and abuse. I'm like, that's basically a cop watch. Yeah. yeah. So they're doing that. So she was in L.A. at this time. So uh, she, was a, she, she was part of this, uh, basically, a precursor to a cop watch, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, she was also a part of the Urban League. She worked for some unions. Um, she was on the NAACP Youth Council. Um, but then uh, one of the things that she mentions is that she wasn't really respected when she was um, in the NAACP and on that youth council because this is just right before the time. And we'll talk a little bit more about it in a second. Uh, when like the NAACP starts um, purging communists from the organization. So she says mm-hmm. she wasn't really um, respected. And so, yeah. so she's, she's doing all that. And then at 16, that's when she like finally joins like the, like the actual communist party and not just the, the youth wing. So, oh, I mean, okay. right. You know, just, she's really, <laughs> that's wild. Real hot girl shit. Exactly. <laughs> and so one of the things that when I was reading about her, uh, I think you really get a strong sense of how how inspired, committed, how inspired by and committed to, um, like, the, the the black diaspora, specifically work that was happening, like, the national liberation struggles on the continent. That that seemed to be, like, a really, like, critical um, 
like political development for her as she spent a lot of time doing work around that. So it's funny because she says um, she actually didn't know like really much about Africa or anything that was going on there, but there started to be like these broader, like these broader debates on the left. And then there was like broader, uh, these like debates like inside of the communist party about how to relate to like the national liberation struggles on the continent. Mm -hmm. And so, um, she started to read up on things. She started to like really try to like read more about what was going on. And she also learned a lot from another black communist leader, member and historian. His name was Alpheus Hunton. And so, um, this is also, this is in the fifties. And so this is also right around the time when like Ghana is in its fight for its national independence and liberation and Ghana, um, gains its independence in 1957. Mm-hmm. And so she says she's reading a lot of Du Bois at the time. And then in 1957, she goes to this meeting in New York city and at this meeting, she learns that there's this big demonstration in D.C. that's in support. Uh, that's like a solidarity demonstration for like national liberation struggles that's happening. And so mm-hmm. I think one of the things that she mentioned is that people were talking about like the Mau Mau um, in Kenya. She was just like, like, what is all this shit? Yeah. And so um, so that happens in 57. And then in 1960, she goes to London. And of course she meets none other than Claudia Jones. And so we know (laughs) Claudia Jones is from, uh, she was born in Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, Mm -hmm. She was also another critical, like really important leading member, a black woman of, um, that was also in the communist party. And just shout out to Carol. I always just shout out and just have so much appreciation for Carol Boyce Davies doing that work of like bringing, like I love the fact that a lot of us know who uh, Claudia Jones is because of the work of Carol Boyce Davies. So in 1960, Charlene goes and she meets Claudia Jones. Um, and, it, and it's important to remember that Claudia Jones is in the UK at this time in 1960 because there's this really vigilant anti-communist persecution anti-communist, campaign. Yeah. And so she was deported to London at that time, which is why she's there. Um, So, yeah, Charlene Mitchell meets her. And then she meets, and again, this thing about, like, this connection to, like, learning about what's going on and wanting to be in solidarity with the movements happening um, on the continent. She meets meets communist members, uh, members of the Communist Party from um, South Africa, and uh, one of which is like she meets a gentleman named Yusuf uh, Dado, Dado, I think that's his name. So he's a Communist Party member and he's a leader um, in the African National Congress. And for, for folks um, who don't know, uh, the ANC plays a really critical role in helping to defeat uh, apartheid in South Africa. And so this is a quote she has. So she says, so to me, Africa opened its doors as part of the movement and solidarity with us as we were with them. And I kind of always saw that as an equal thing because I would learn so much from it. The more victories that were won by the continent, people on the continent, the more we were able to expose what was going on in terms of the segregation, discrimination here in the United States. Mm -hmm. It was on the face of it that solidarity was a two-way street. Mm -hmm. Um... And so, um, again, I mentioned, you know, the, like the fifties is like the McCarthy period where there's like these really terrible attacks. It's like a really, 
uh, like these vicious campaigns against communists and all. There's a lot of like Cold War hysteria. And so there's an interesting connection um, that she um, makes uh, between like how like people in power saw people who were doing work in solidarity um, with the continent and like people in power making that connection between like internationalism and communism. And so she says the 1950s were actually like the early 50s were probably one of the hardest, most difficult periods um, of her life. Um, so. Like, you know, like she said in the, uh, like she pointed out in the beginning, when she was, even when she was on the youth council with the NAACP um, in the 40s, they were already starting to purge communists. But the NAACP and then the Council on African Affairs and other groups uh, in the U.S. actually, like, started to get rid of, like, uh, communists in the organization. And so it's very interesting because in this interview, it's italicized, but she says, like, the NAACP wasn't, like, pressured. She's like, but they permitted um, you know, this sort of, um, purging and kicking like the militants and communists out of uh, the organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so she was like, when you kick these people out, you, you kick out like the most militant members. Um, and so NAACP commit, Mm -hmm. like capitulated to anti-communism and then it tried to do this, like, yeah. Look at us, we're American sort of thing. And so it's like, and yeah. then the connection yep. she makes is like, of course, like this is a period where like so much of like communism is like one of the key, like one of the ways people are talking about it is that it's like some kind of like foreign threat. So like any kind of international mm-hmm. like solidarity. So she was like, anytime somebody's doing anything with solidarity with Africa, whether they were communists or not, they were deemed as such, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And so she just mentions that, like, it was during this time that, like, leading members of, like, the Communist Party, uh, black members like Ben Davis and Henry uh, Winston, they were being thrown into jail. So she said a lot of people at this time, herself included, went underground. Um, And so she tells us, like, really, like, terrible. It's like this, it's it's such a, a, a tough story because, so she's, she goes to St. Louis and so she's living in this apartment with the, with this other black family. It's a conservative Catholic black family. So she goes in the early 50s. And um, so there's this couple, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. So a lot of people might not know, but it's like a very famous case of the Rosenberg. So it was... It's really, it was just a really nasty... I don't have time to get into the whole thing, but it was... Uh, suffice it to say... It was a really nasty, basically communist witch hunt against this couple. You know, the the state tried to say that they were spies and they were engaging in espionage. And so unfortunately, it was like a really high, it was a really high scale, high profile case. And unfortunately, they ended up being executed. So she says she's in this apartment and she's finding out that the Rosenbergs are being like, they're put to death. And so she says she's just sobbing. And so she says like, she can't, like she can't say she can't explain or talk about why she's sobbing, you know, mm. to this couple because mm-hmm. she's like, if I say that I'm like devastated that the Rosenbergs are, you know, have been put to death by the state, then it like outs me um, as a communist. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, that was again that so that was like a, she says it was a really harrowing time for her. But again, that's in the early fifties. So she emerges, you know, like we see in the sixties. In like 1960, she goes to see um, Claudia Jones, and then, um, but in 1967, um, 
Charlene Mitchell find found she starts this Chela Mumba Club, which is an all black uh, communist party club in Los Angeles, and that's that's going to be important later on, and you'll find out why. So in 1968, heard of that before. Yeah, you probably have. So hold on. So okay, 1968. This is when she finally runs for um, president on the Communist Party ticket. First black woman, you know, to run for president. And her running mate was Mike Zagarel. So it was more of a symbolic sort of campaign. Uh, It wasn't particularly successful, uh, which is I think that's one of the reasons why. We don't hear about it, but in the clip that was circulating on social media, it's just like a little hour, like not an hour, but like a minute and 10 second clip where she's talking about how the election law is basically stacked against communists in particular, but like third parties in general. Cause it was like mm-hmm. one of the things that she said, and this is like still true today. Like you have to get a whole bunch of signatures in yeah. order to get like on the ballot. And at one point communists weren't even allowed on the ballot and so, yeah. so that's the video. Like, that's what she's talking about in that video. Like, the, the law is stacked against us, so we can't be, like, right. any kind of real viable, like, alternative. Yeah. Um, and just to flash uh, back real quick, another effort, another independent third party um, that she was a part of uh, in 1948 was the Progressive Party. Um, so one of the things that she said, one of the things that drew her to the party um, was, you know, it was independent from the Democrats. And at that time, the Dixiecrats were the, you know, the racist uh, Democrats mm-hmm. of the South basically had a monopoly. Um, on, they were they had a lot of power in the party. And then one of the things she said that drew her to the party was that one of the, one of their like platform planks was, uh, you know, all the countries in Africa had a right to self-determination. Right. So that was something that was like really like critical um, and important for her. And so um, that's and that's when she was like, okay, like, you know, we need to have some kind of different a different kind of party because. So now not only was it overrun, not only was the Democratic Party overrun by Dixiecrats, but the mainstream of the Democratic Party was also like deeply um, like the, the Cold War politics and like the policies of, you know, of the ruling of the ruling elite in the Democratic Party, like they, that, she didn't align with that either. Yeah, yeah. So, um, the in the nineteen sixty eight run, I mean, they were only on this, they were only on the ballot in two states. So that's, I think, that's one of the reasons why we just we don't know about it because there wasn't any kind of, mm-hmm. you know, widespread. I mean, they weren't really on the ballot, basically. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, um. The her running mate was um I don't even think he was old enough. These niggas are still popping these fireworks. Um her running mate wasn't even like old enough, I think, to technically even run for um office, but it was really meant to be more of a symbolic thing because as it was the way that I read it, um, in this one piece, it was like she was supposed to be like the symbol of like the fight against racism and the fight for peace. And because he was young, I think he was like, uh, whatever the age was to be drafted, I think what was that, like 18? That's 18. So that's how old mm-hmm. he was. And it was supposed to be a symbol of like the. The, anti-war. the anti-war movement, uh, mm-hmm. the draft, you know, the draft resistors and like the student movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, everywhere, um, yeah, so everywhere they went, they were supposed to be, like, symbols of the problems and the people in the country that the major two parties ignore. Um, 
How, does that not sound familiar? <laughs> we still are yeah. dealing with that. Still till today. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it wasn't a particularly like successful run, but I do feel like, I mean, those election laws are still very much stacked, <laughs> yeah. um, against third parties. Um, so that happens in 60, so that she makes that run in 68. And I remember in 1967, she founded the Che Lumumba club. And the reason why that might sound familiar is because Angela Davis joined the communist party through the mm-hmm. Che Lumumba club. Che Lumumba, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I just a year after she runs um, for president, um, so she helps. So Charlene Mitchell, Angela Davis, and other people from the Communist Party helped the Black Panther Party put on this huge conference. And so the conference was the National Conference for a United Front Against Fascism. Uh, over four thousand people attended that conference. What? Um, so that I mean, it's so much of this sounds so like familiar because it's like we're dealing with like the you know, the, an emboldened fascist uh, authoritarians mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. far right right now. And so she actually ended up being like really close. Um, she was considered a mentor um, of Angela Davis. And um, so, of course, right after, I think it's like 71 or so, that's when Angela Davis has her trial, right? When she's arrested yeah. on those trumped up charges. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Charlene Mitchell it becomes the executive director of the National United Committee to Free Angela Davis, which is one of the largest national defense organizations um, in U.S. history. Um, so she, and this is a quote, so she noted that the committee learned that, quote, legal and mass defense of political prisoners is an inseparable entity. You cannot free a political prisoner in the courtroom alone. And you cannot... Without a good political legal def- and you cannot without a good political legal defense in the courtroom make a mass defense. So she said mm-hmm. you basically needed to have a mass defense. You need both. Yeah, yeah, and a good political defense in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, that national like organization, of course, would help to go on to spawn <clears throat> the 200 local free Angela Davis committees um, in 1973. So just like a short while after. She um, becomes the founding um, director of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political um, Repression. So, uh, last, oh, here's another thing. Tell me if this name sounds familiar. So, I don't, I'm not going to go too, too much in what she was doing until like the 70s and the 80s, but she was still doing a lot of um, work. In the 70s and 80s, she was still doing a lot of like solidarity work with Africa. Um, she traveled all over and this uh, one interview I mean she went to she was saying that she went to Cuba she went to um, Portugal um, I think she said that she was in a meeting at one point with Amokar Cabral so I mean I feel like she said that she also went and spoke with um, like Stokely Carmichael also known as Kwame Ture so I mean I feel like she was mm-hmm. all over the map she was everywhere she yeah. was I mean she was really all over she had to she ended up going to Peru because you know you couldn't take a direct flight to Cuba so you had to so she had to go to per- Lima Peru then to get back home so she's like she's yeah. been all over which is again a testament to her commitment to like internationalism but in 1988 she also runs for um, office she wants to be a senator of new york and she runs tell me if this name sounds familiar so in 1988 she runs as a progressive independent progressive against daniel patrick moynihan (laughs) of the moynihan report 
Yes, I was. I did not know that. So for people who may not know, we're not we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, getting into the weeds of it. But a lot of people might know that the Moynihan report was this was this report issued by liberal Democratic yes. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and the, the, one of like the the it's it's something that a lot of us know and who study like black women and like mm-hmm. black feminism because one of the things one of the things that came out of that report that Daniel Manic, Daniel Patrick Morning had said is that black families basically have quote a tangle of pathology. So he was basically saying that because black families are headed by, you know, single mothers, like single black women, that there's like a whole like culture of pathology, mm-hmm. a tangle of pathology that kind of like makes that's like the reason why um, black people have, are yeah, poor have so many and black people don't have issues. access. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's wild because he wasn't like a rabid racist conservative, but that's like, I mean, we still see that today. Like these liberal notions that like of culture, yeah. right? Like it's because of people's culture mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. why they're, um, death by culture about why they're yeah. poor. Um, yeah. So I just, I didn't know that she, I just didn't know that she made that run and, 88, but of all people against Daniel. I saw that name and I was like, what? So. I just always think about these alternative timelines that we could have been living in had, had like these small things in history gone different. Yeah. 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 So, um, he, he won by a large margin, but she did way better in that race than she did in that 68 race. Mm -hmm. Um, so she left. So there's all these, like internal debates and dissatisfaction with like the leadership of the communist party. So she eventually left the party in 91, but she's gone on to still be a part of like other organizations um, and movements. So, and she's still alive. That's so wild to me. Yeah. I love that. Shout out to that. Yes. Wait, so does she have any political affiliations today? Were you able to find any? Yeah, so she's, I didn't, I've never heard of this um, group, but she's a part of, it's called, it's like the Committee of Correspondence for like Socialism and Democracy or something like that. Mm, okay. Yeah, the Committee of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism. So that that's what she's a part of. I don't, I don't know anything about that group, um, but as of... I think it's like as of like two, like the early 2000s, she was a part of that group. So I don't, I don't, I mean, that's like what, 15, 20 years ago. So who knows if she's still a part of that. Yeah. But. Oh my gosh. I can't believe the early 2000s was 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is so amazing to like learn about. I mean, you know, I've been in my uh, communist black woman bag trying so. Yeah. This is amazing to learn about her and to know that, you know, she's still with us. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I just, I've always learned about Shirley Chisholm as the first um, black woman to run for president. Yeah. And, yeah, and so now I have to, like, qualify that. Like, she's the first to run with a major party, Major party, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. So... It just feel like if you want to, she, she got set on this path and just has lived it the rest of her life. Yeah. How do you, yeah. How do you become an international struggle thinker at 13? She did it. She did it. Wow. Well, I guess if you want to be a bad bitch politically, just name your child Charlene. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Truly. (laughs) 
so funny. Thank you, Nikita. Yeah, well, thank you because you you were talking about you know being your communist black woman bag. So I was like, I'd much rather talk about this. Alrighty. So we're gonna move it on along to our topic segment, and the topic segment is just our queer potpourri. It's the segment where we talk all things that don't really fit into our other segments. <laughs> so Nikita, um, today we wanted to talk about basically like how do you represent your relationships publicly but on social media because you know i mean it's old news when this episode drops but it's still the shocker of it's probably the best thing that's happened in quarantine <laughs> right right um logging into instagram and <laughs> that <laughs> niecy nash is yeah. on our team <laughs> Um, and shout out to Jessica Vets too. I've been following her on Instagram forever, and I didn't even know this one snuck up on me. Oh god, it was so funny because I was like, when I logged in, I was like, let me smash. <laughs> I thought it was for like yeah. a movie. I was like, oh, I can't wait to go see this. You like, oh, this, this is real life. <laughs> this oh, is yeah. real. Really excited about that. And congratulations Indeed. to them. I think that, like, right after we finished recording the last episode, we yeah, saw that, right? probably. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it had us, like, talking and thinking about, like, how, yeah, how do you post about your relationship online? Do you have any, like, rules about it? Or is it just kind of like a thing that you feel through as it goes? Do you feel the need to make it Instagram or Facebook official? Do you just wait till you have a whole last wedding and pop? That's up with I a think wife? that's the way to do it from here on out. I don't think I don't think we should do it in any other yeah. way. I I just feel like I've been doing this gay thing all wrong, and I should have been um, like not out. <laughs> all this time just so I could come out in this out. bad yeah. ass way. <laughs> just pop out with a whole That's wife. So funny. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this is like, I mean, do we put this under, is this like in the new virtual age of a public display of affection? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Posting about each other is definitely public display. Oh, I feel like I've only ever posted on like smaller that's not true, but I feel like I tend to just do the smaller platforms. Like I don't need to be. I I, th- I don't know. I don't. I like. I don't like. What do you mean smaller? Platforms? Where, where I have the least, where I have like platform? the least followers, or it's like the people who I know the most follow me. Like oh I have, okay, it's just like okay on Facebook. I don't like. I don't really. I have a lot of not a lot, but I feel like I have like a good number of people that follow me on there, and I'm just I don't. Know, I don't. I'm not too keen on like people. Being able to like be nosy and see what's going on <laughs> in my relationship. I'm just a generally private person, so mm-hmm. I have not. I'm not really too big mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I don't think I have a a smaller platform. 
I think I'm pretty consistent across. Maybe Facebook yeah. is my small platform because I'm never, I'm never on it, and I don't hardly yeah. ever post. So, I guess that would be my smallest. Your place. Instagram is also public, and mine is not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I but like, I think I just we just use it for different reasons. Like, I think you use your Instagram the way that I probably started off using it, like keeping up with friends, family. Yeah, that's the main way I use um, it. Yeah, and it's like a a photo photo journal, yeah, basically. Yeah. And I use my Instagram um, kind of the same way I used to use Tumblr, like self-affirmation, self-reflections, yeah. and like hopefully trying to find somebody who that resonates with. So, so you say you post thirst traps. That's not what that's, I, that's what I heard. That, that was my takeaway. That was my takeaway. That's not what I said. I think so, like, if I'm doing a self reflection or a self affirmation, you just you happen know, just to have your gams out, and and somebody else is like, I fucks with that, or I feel that, like, like, then you know. Let the cards fall where they may. Oh my god! But um, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, the way y'all talk about it, I don't thirst trap. Um, yeah. So I don't think I've. I don't think I've been in a relationship since my Instagram has been good. That's so funny. <laughs> so um, so I've never um, posted a partner on my Instagram. No, you have back in the day on Instagram. Yeah. I don't remember this. I do. I remember on Facebook. No, I remember on Instagram. And I remember I remember people tagging me in pictures with my partner on Instagram. Oh, no. Well, anyway, it wasn't significant. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz I didn't remember, but Yeah. Um I don't know. I think I think before like I didn't really have a rule about it. But it was always a conversation with the person that I was dating. Mm. Like, I remember feeling a kind of way when people didn't post me. Interesting. I I get that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just like, oh, so you, you fuck with me, but you don't publicly fuck with me? Like... That's what it kind of felt like. And it was like some of those remains of all the things, you know, like, like whether people like want to hide that they're attracted course, to you of course. or, or don't want to be gay, but want to be gay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, like, like all of those things that, you know, they hurt. Yeah. So to me, it, to me, it was like an, it was like an affirming thing to be posted Post on sure, somebody's sure, page. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also because, like, everybody that I've dated could be considered, like, you know, conventionally attractive. And I remember my first girlfriend, uh, somebody literally, like, came up to me and asked me, like, how did you, like, get with her? Holy shit. And, yeah. And so I think, I think like, those things, too, in my early 20s, yeah. they really, like, got to me. And so I would be like, no, you need to let people know that we're together. And actually, there's been like these big differences in a lot of the relationships I've been in. Because I was thinking about that one that you claimed that I posted that I can't remember. 
that we would go places and they would just introduce me like, oh, this is money. Um, she does this, she does that. And I'm like, oh, that's great. But like, because of the spaces we're in together and because of the very obvious difference we have, you need to introduce me as your partner. Right. Um, yeah. And that like introduced me as their partner, like exposed a lot of like really racist friends that they had, you <laughs> yeah. know, so it's like, Holy you need shit. to be, you need to be doing this. So interesting. Yeah. But as far as like not having too many voices in your relationship, absolutely. Like, yeah. I think a, a thing I just increasingly, I might've talked about this before, but I think there's just this thing on social media where it just feels like, I mean, I feel like I have this disposition of just being a private person in general, but I I just feel like there's like this increasing drive to like live as much of your life as possible. Like I'm just not, I'm not one of those people who's like interested in like having my whole life displayed Mm -hmm. um, on social media. And I feel like there are things that, feel um important to like it feels important for me to have things to keep very close keep intimate yeah, yeah. so like the very meaning of the word intimate, yeah right? it just like yeah. I, I feel like i just have i bristle at that i'm not that's like it's yeah. not any kind of like judgment for like individuals who do that but it feels like there's like this cultural like drive that like I think that yeah, makes you feel yeah. like you always have to be like because even if it's not like relationships I feel like there's always this like you always want to be posting like if you didn't post it it didn't happen or not even that it's like look at me like you have to like demonstrate how happy and amazing and great you know that your life is and it's like I don't know it's like there's I don't I feel like there's like a drive social media kind of like if that's that's where like the whole like algorithm comes from. That's what the, that's where I feel like that's where you get money. Out. It's like it's like you're always trying to be. Um, it's like putting mm-hmm. projecting a, a certain kind of thing, and that's what like drives you to it. And everybody is like comparing themselves to how yeah, other yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. else is like living their lives. So yeah, mm-hmm. at bad fat black girl Cecily, she did a um a YouTube video about this about like. Uh, what does she call it? No face, no case of like why she doesn't post people she's um, in a relationship with. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, basically like that part, that is not part of my like social media influencer or yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever yeah. aesthetic, basically, you yeah. know, it's like this, this is a, a part of my, rela- my life yeah. that doesn't, doesn't fit with the presence that I want to have on Instagram. Um, yeah, and that makes sense to me. Like as I as I heard you say that, it's like there are like I don't. I think yeah, I agree with that. Like I don't want parts of my life on social media, but I I think I do it in a different way because because I think about like my social media as like very public, even though I don't have you know like huge yeah, followers. Yeah, yeah. But it's like I all I always want it to be like open and accessible. Yeah. But. But I'm very specific and almost, like, controlled what I post on my, like, page, what I put in my story, um, what somebody could screenshot and be like, Montanique posted this, you know? Um, And, you know, historically, relationships have just been so, like, 
flimsy mm-hmm. that's like that's not yeah i, I suppose that's I another also, thing too like if it's not um if it's not like a like i know that we're like committed in like a serious relationship then i'm, I'm not going mm-hmm. to post it yeah yeah you know people be trying to like put two and two together and keep getting five too because you know it's like they be they be checking that person's page yeah, checking yeah, your yeah. page trying to see the last time you posted or commented on something and then putting stuff together and yeah 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 i also remember um you know back back in the day when i was still putting um like hearts and sparkly things on my pictures um the person I was dating at the time, we had we had went to this retreat in California together and like one of the like yoga guru ladies who was hosting it um, added us on Instagram. And then years later, Nikita, like I shit you not, like at least three years after this, mind you, we had been broke up, right? <laughs> this person is clearly not on my page anywhere. And the the yoga lady from the retreat comments on one of my pictures one of my pictures where i'm you know cute yeah 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 are you and bleep, still together why would you do that <laughs> that is so wild i was like what this is wild like you you literally wrote her name like you and you commented why would you do, you that's something like, you shoot in a dm that is so weird <laughs> So after that, I was like, yeah, I'm I'm kind of done with the public posting of partner. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I think I get really giddy about uh, having a new person, a new flame. And I could easily imagine myself, like, over-posting about them. And then you go to their page, and it's crickets yeah. about me. And... I know me, and I know I would feel you would internalize that. something about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, you know what? Just to keep all the feelings off the gram, and I think Twitter feels a lot less stakes for me. Like I think I would tweet about uh, my partner and all that stuff because everything is a wash on Twitter. Nobody ever gonna see your tweet. Like if a tweet of mine gets like four likes, I think it went viral. <laughs> You're so ridiculous. <laughs> Because I don't get no kind of, like, whatever on Twitter. So, I think I think I would be totally fine, like, tweeting about a partner. But, like, for it to live on my page on the gram? I don't know. I've never tweeted yikes. or anything. I'm like, it's just too much. I think even on the podcast, you're, you're like, mm, not going to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I really don't. <laughs> I really, like, I really feel weird. I, and, I, like, if things are, like, mm-hmm. in the midst like, I, like I'm not, I don't want to talk about them. It's like, eh, yeah, I'm yeah. not really that big on sharing. Yeah. If it's like a... So, you know. So, like, obviously, like, my last relationship, it was, like, a long one, and it was a committed one. So, I'm like, okay, I'll talk yeah, about yeah. that one. But, like, if, if it's not that, then I'm like, it doesn't... People don't need to know about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then, I guess I'll never be posting... <laughs> Why do you say that? Hmm. Just downtrodden about dating. <laughs> no. Should we go ahead and dive right into the Curved Chronicle then? Sure. All right. All right. We're going to move it on along 
last but not least, to the Curved Chronicles segment. Curved, 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 curved. And Curved Chronicles is where we talk about our dating woes and wins, your dating woes and wins, or answer some kind of dating question related to QPOC or Queer Walk um, dating. So, Nikita, got any chronicles of the curve? Uh, No, I'm like really... I feel like I'm, like, in this new resurgence of, like, I just feel like I'm having, like, this deep paranoia about COVID. So, it's just, I don't, because it's, like, I feel like, I don't know. I'm just, like, because it's not, like, you're, like, I feel like in the times of COVID, it's not, like, getting to know one person. But it's, like, I just think about it, like, um... It's like you like interface with this person and then they interface with the people that they're like interfacing with. So I'm like, oh, well, you know, if I start doing any kind of serious dating, then I'll definitely get the vid. So I don't know if it's just because I traveled <laughs> that I'm thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like, I think I'm like, I think I'm making peace with the fact that I just don't, I don't know if I'm cut out for the apps. I feel like in my little run over the summer, I feel like there's like three connections that I've had that were like solid. Substantial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think, yeah, I, I feel like I knew going in that I wasn't an app person. And I think, yeah. I think that I'm just like confirmed and that's just not a way that I'm, it's not the way that I'm most, interested in like meeting people mm. and I feel like the way that I'm mm-hmm. most the way the way that's most conducive <laughs> for me to meet people is like I'm just feeling like really paranoid about it so mm-hmm. and it's like so I feel like it, it would have to be a situation where it's like somebody else who's taking it as, as seriously, seriously as yeah mm-hmm. as me yeah. it's like there's yeah I'm just kind of like yeah I don't know and I, th- I think I'm I mean, more nervous about it. I, no, it's not just because I traveled. I think I'm, like, more nervous about it because we're going into the fall. And I think I'm thinking that that's when there's going to be the resurgence. Because, like, in the yeah. summer, like, I didn't mind. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't going, like, out of control or anything. But, like, like I went on some, like, socially distant dates. And I was like, that's, like, that yeah. that was okay. That was fine. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. like. But now with, like, schools reopening. People going back. To I'm work. going back to work. Think, yeah, and I yeah, and it's just like the yeah. season. It's like flu season. So I'm like, I just don't. Yep. Yeah. I'm just not feeling that. Yeah. I already scheduled a doctor's appointment to get my flu shot. Yeah. Mine wrote me. Yeah. It was like this in a message, and it was like, "Hey, flu season. I've never gotten a flu shot before." I'm like, "Pump me with everything this <laughs> season." <laughs> <laughs> I'll drip it, you inject it. (laughs) I'll sniff it. (laughs) Um, I want you to touch that little daily thing that's sweet. (laughs) Just put it all in. Yeah, I'm just like, wherever it's got to go, just shoot it right in. So I just I just need to be in tip top respiratory health. Exactly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I think um, that's where I'm at. And so I don't know. I feel like I, I feel like I had a good trial run for this summer, just because it's something that I've never done, and I feel like I can say I did it. 
mm-hmm. just to say that I've did it. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. That's just not. I don't think that it's uh, a mode of connecting that most jives with me. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what I was like uh, discussing last episode. Like, I just don't think, I just don't think app dating is for me. Yeah. It's kind of bizarre. Yeah. And um, and then go ahead. Uh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, I was just, I was just nerdily thinking. Like, I wonder if there's a correlation between people who post about their partners and people who uh, like dating apps. Maybe analog. Anyway, uh, you know, I'm an analog girl in a digital world to begin with. Right. Um, right. There's also just not like a lot of black women or women of color on the apps, and it's like, if I see one mm-hmm. more fucking Kaylee, I'm just gonna like explode. I'm just yeah. going to lose yeah. it. Any more fucking graces. Or Hannah's. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just like, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like, they all do the same things. I'm like, okay. The minute you see this thing, and then you're like, mm-hmm. okay. I'm just like, I just don't want to see another adult talking about Harry Potter. Oh, it's just my sick. gosh. Sick. Why do they all have their Harry Potter house in there? I'm like, you're not a huffle <laughs> anything. <laughs> I, I told Christian this morning that I was just going to put Slytherin in my bio because I never see it. I only see Ravenclaw, yeah. Hufflepuff. Mostly those two, Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw. Yeah. I'm just going to be like, Slytherin and what? And I've never... <laughs> I would just be like Voldemort, a Voldemort bitch. Leave me alone. Like what? Just I'm just like, why are we doing this? As my adults? son is in Voldemort. Um, my rising oh is my Draco God. Malfoy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so funny. I was thinking about this, and I remember how hard Hanifa was going in on yeah. the apps when we did that episode mm-hmm. with them, and I was uh, with uh, your gay aunties. And I'm like, I think that's, I think that's really where I'm at. Yeah. Have you seen, have you it's seen those not... tweets that's like, mentally I'm here, and it's like this uh, disaster room that. Be... <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. That's how I feel about the dating apps. I'm just like, I don't know. It's just, it's just not. Yeah, it's not yeah. for me. It was, it was fun. I feel like, I feel like it was also a good little. Experiment for my little introverted self. Yeah, because yeah, because I was thinking like you can do things that are COVID safe, like the the Mm -hmm. Zoom dates Mm -hmm. and you know the WhatsApp video dates. It's not the same. It's not the same, but I'm not I'm not I'm not into that. I feel like I think I realized I I don't I I don't think I have any interest in that. Mm. It was like it just feels like a thing to be doing, just to like pass the time, but not a thing that I would be like. Really? invested in so i was like i'm not, I'm not gonna do wow. that yeah I, I went on go ahead go ahead i just I, like i did that one mm-hmm. zoom date with that one person or the mm-hmm. whatsapp one that that was really fun they were like a very and, and, and we like i like we like like we were just talking like we had known each other for yeah. forever and that was because but it's also the kind i mean they lived elsewhere but it was it's also the kind of person that I feel like I would have met. Like, it's a person I would have come across right, in real right. life. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so I feel like that is, mm-hmm. like, I could imagine us being, I mean, well, we well we're, we live mm-hmm. in different places, so we ain't no way we're going to run into right, the same right. people. But if it's like. But if you were um, in the same. 
if we were in the same place, it's like you would like this is a person that you right. would run into right. in person. See, for me, my last entanglement, um, I feel like I got, I felt like it was more and it was like a connection there because we would spend so much time video calling each other. And I, mm-hmm. like in my mind and the way I process stuff, as far as like being connected to somebody, the more we talk, the more deep I feel like the relationship is. And so it feels like to me, like, oh, my gosh, you're like taking time out your day. You know, we watching movies together on video calls and doing all like that. All of that feels very, very sweet to me. And I and I yeah, understand now like, after that entanglement that for some people it is like a am passing the time and I'll do this with anybody. Yeah. But to me, like, yeah, like that. It means something to me. It makes me feel like, yeah. It. I feel like I would do. I feel like I cannot start a relationship mm. in that way. I feel like you know if you're. In, I feel like if I'm in a relationship and there's some reason why it's got to be long distance, I would do that. But I just. I think that for. I think there's just some whatever internal hangup where I'm. Like, I just. I don't want to. If that's what the relationship has to be from like the get go, then I like. I don't really oh, want to do yeah. that. I think. I mean, I don't know. I think, uh, like, quarantine has kind of turned everything for me on its head because I don't necessarily think I used to be, like, a physical touch person, but now I really am. And But, but mm-hmm. like, before, and even a little bit now, I, was to- I would be totally okay with starting a relationship like that. Like, I mean, I have. <laughs> I have before. Like, we yeah. meet on Tumblr, and then we're, like, constantly messaging, and then we meet up in person. Yeah. You know, it's like... That is fine for me. Like, I'm okay with that. But it's because I experienced mm. these, like, video call things as, like, as as love. Like, sweet. Like, oh, this yeah. is so... And when I was... When I was... I can imagine, like, 15 years ago. But, like, the like the idea of right now, like, being my old curmudgeonly cranky self. Like, I, I, do, I do not want to be texting anybody all day long. No <laughs> absolutely not I'm even when I'm doing no and it's like you know I said on the last episode I, I just do not believe in multitasking yeah. so it's like I have to like sit down and I'm like no absolutely mm-hmm. not <laughs> I just I can't be on this zoom what's happening and click clacking on the you know, keyboard is too much I'm not interested <laughs> in that <laughs> and it's I feel like the one the one connection I've had is is because I've been able to socially distantly sustain yeah. it, like I like like just like going outside, mm-hmm. like going on outside dates, mm-hmm. being outdoors. But yeah, uh, it's funny because that they texted, and it was because they were like, like early on when we were texting, she said this thing where she was like. Because I would respond like two days later. So she's like, oh, she's like, I think I'm just making peace with the fact that this is going to be the nature of our mm-hmm. text exchange. And I'm just like, I can't be, I can't be going back and forth with you on this phone all day. I think I do. I mean, even if, even while I'm in group chats with yeah, you, I'm like, they can yeah. do that. I'm like, I'll kiki and like every now and then, but I just can't be on no phone and no text yeah. all day. I think I do it in spurts. But it's, I'm also like 30-something going on, 30-something going on 70. Yeah, this is true. Old soul. Old soul. 
I think I'm, a, I think I'm just realizing that I'm, I, I've said this to you off air privately. Um, I'm just, I think I'm one of these people who I'm realizing that I'm, I'm not cutting edge. I'm not, I'm not forward thinking in terms of like rethinking relationships. Yeah. I th- like, I think like intellectually, I feel like that makes yeah. sense to me, but I feel like for whatever reasons, uh, practically like that's not, I feel the same way. I'm like, I'm like, I'm not. So it's like, I would not like, I like, unless there's like other sorts of connections, mm-hmm. like I'm like, I'm, I'm not interested in just like having like a cuddle mm-hmm. buddy anything, or anything like that. Yeah. Like there's got there's got to be doesn't have to be like full fledged whatever but there's got to be like there has to be something else. Well, ideal ideally, I would be able to have a conversation with them. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. I don't think I'm you know like cutting edge queer either. Um, I think yeah. I'm. I think yeah, I'm, I'm realizing just that. basic generic gay. Like, I yeah. I my ideal relationship format is monogamous like you know yep, I just yep. want all the the regular regular things <laughs> you know yeah I think that's like a, a thing I I think I kind of knew about myself and then <laughs> um well, I mean, I won't get too much into that, but <laughs> I think I think it's something I've learned recently that I think I actually, after a not so good trial run, <laughs> I think that I'm actually um, uh, a monogamous yeah. person too. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think that that's that's uh, becoming like less common also when dating too. Like most most people are either like some form of non monogamous, if not polyamorous. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just, I'll just, I guess I'll just wave from the, <laughs> from the, the, shore. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the yeah. The without us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Uh, it's all right. And I always just feel so nervous. I feel, I just, I mean, I think it's clear if you listen to the show and if you know us, and if you hear the course of the conversation, but I just, I do just want to say that we, like, we're just saying for like us as individuals, it's not any kind of indictment on ethical non-monogamy or polyamory or anything yeah, like no. that. Cause you know, you just, you know how people get, they're like, well, you know, money and the kid yeah. were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not that people in our community do that, yeah, but I just feel like I mean, <laughs> um, I, and that had that thing, that kind of thing has not happened not to us, knock on wood, in a while. while. Yeah, yeah. Cerebrally, I can process all this stuff and like understand how like someone else could be oriented differently than me. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But I mean, for me in my house, yeah. I'm and I can even personally concede that it's because I've been it's like I live in the same society as everybody exactly. else. You exactly. know, it's like I'm not right. You know, I, I, I totally understand that those broader forces are probably working right. on me as yeah. well. And it's like but and yet I'm like at this point in my life like that, that feels OK for me. Right. Like I don't live outside of this conditioning, you know. Yeah, like, exactly. Exactly. The fact that Jessica and Nisi are like the cutest ass, you know stereotypical one masculine presenting one femme yeah 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 white wedding you know it's like yeah Yeah. i live i live in the same damn systems that you know we try to challenge so that's we didn't underestimate 
we need to start a campaign. We need to start. It's like on the one hand, we've said all this bullshit about being private and understanding privacy. And I respect that. And I get that. But at some point, we need to have a campaign to get Jessica on this program to talk about what in the living fuck happened. (laughs) And no, we don't even need to do an interview. She just needs to do a YouTube seminar. Tutorial. Yeah. You know what? It's like, you know, we out here trying these dating apps. What we actually need to do is find unhappily married Mm. Seemingly hetero women. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Nikita's like, oh, you already know because <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> I think we should go ahead and wrap this up. <laughs> All right, we'll wrap this episode up before we get Nikita jumped. Okay. <laughs> oh boy. All right, y'all. Um, if y'all have like any um you know what is it like you said public displays of affection for like partners any rules y'all have around it any um anecdotes or tidbits y'all want to share with us you can throw it in the hashtag queer woc or you can just send it to us at queerwalkpod at gmail.com indeed all right so well this has been money the birthday bitch and this has been Hashtag Nikita. Virgo supremacy. Oh Hashtag my God. Virgo the Virgos. Oh, Virgos are so Hashtag obnoxious. all your favorites are Virgos. That's not even true. Hashtag I, if it wasn't for Virgos, there wouldn't even be um, a Zodiac. Hashtag because you know we like to organize shit. <laughs> Hashtag because they like to trample on other people and think that it's their way or the highway. Hashtag complete and utter insufferable control freaks. Nikita, I think you're projecting Capricorn energy onto I'm not, me. That's fine. You know. I anyway, when anyway, you're, when you're at the top, people always take shots. Yeah, when you're at the top, you 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 love you you just cream yourself thinking about all the people you smashed and stomped on to get there. I didn't stomp on anybody. You just kicked them out of the way and told them. Oh, exactly. And this has been (laughs) Know Nothing About Basketball, Nikita. That's right. And you just listened to Queer Walk the Podcast and my first episode of my Reggie Miller year. Yes, and I now know who that individual is. He's a (laughs) pacer, whatever that is. All right. (laughs) Bye, y'all. Bye.